Welcome to the What's Your Ceiling podcast. We're your hosts, Monty Wyatt and Paul Szczynski. Wherever you are in life, there is a higher ceiling. This podcast is how you become aware of it and how to take action to push through it. I'm Monty Wyatt, best-selling author of Pulling Profits Out of a Hat and CEO of Adding Zeros Executive Development. I grew up on a family farm in Iowa and have gone from sowing corn to sowing seeds of success throughout the world, leading, managing, and training teams. With me is Paul Szczynski, entrepreneur and investor who also grew up on a family farm here in Iowa. We believe every organization and person can be intentional in how they lead, influence, and manage their lives and businesses. What's Your Ceiling is for professionals, managers, executives, entrepreneurs, and business owners who want to achieve more in their health, family, and business by breaking through their ceiling. Every episode will give you real-world, easy-to-implement solutions so that you can be more aware and take action to reach new heights. It's time to discover your ceiling. Welcome to the What's Your Ceiling podcast, where we talk about your health, family, and business. It is my pleasure today to be broadcasting from Japan. We're in a town just outside of Tokyo called Shigasaki, and I am with a great friend, Sinesh Stevens, today, and uh, she is my speaking coach. She's a TEDx speaker. Uh, She's a speaker herself, a speaker trainer, and she's lived in Japan for 25 years. So we're here to talk about her journey, some of the things that she's grown through, especially uh, being in a different country, different cultures, and different aspects of life. So Sinesh, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Monty. It's Absolutely. such a joy to be here with you. You bet. We always start our show with a, a little topic just to get us started. And today's topic, I want to I talk about creating stories. When you hear the phrase creating stories, what comes to mind to you? What comes to mind to me is our entire 10 days together. <laughs> We have been creating stories every single moment of every single day. And that's how we live as human beings. Humans are storytelling animals. And as we as we go through life, we create different scenes and scenarios and what what adventures we've had over the past 10 days. And everyone has a different story and a different adventure that's uniquely yours. You know, I, I love that. It is everyone does have a story. Some people create more stories than others. And <laughs> it's because they look for them. And I think that is a, a part of growth and breaking through ceilings as well is you do have to create your own stories. So we as our our listener, the achiever, I want you to think about your stories. What stories are you creating? Or first of all, what stories have you created in your past that have helped make you who you are? But secondly, what stories do you want to create in the future? As you said, every day we're creating stories. It's you got to look for them. You got to find them, but it's also challenging yourself. So uh, just to start us off, what's a story from this week that uh, really stands out to you that is a, a great creation that maybe we had to break through something to create that story? Oh my goodness, there's so many stories. First of all, let, let me first address what stories are, uh, because you know sometimes in, in the personal development world we hear that you know oh everything is a story, which puts it as a negative light. But when we're looking at our stories and our patterns and our creations on a daily basis, the joy that they bring, because as we sit around the campfire, especially as a, a TED and TEDx speaker coach and a 
TED Worldwide and four-time TEDx speaker, and when I train my speakers, we're looking at what stories can you bring to the table. Not that every TED Talk needs to have an epic story, and I'm not saying get up on your TED stage and go like, my brother almost killed me, my dad, you know, like to have heard those stories, and they're, they have their places and they don't have their places, so we have to figure out where they are. So one, stories aren't necessarily all the traumatic events that have happened to you, but also the delightful moments and scenes. And as we work together, we start pulling out the stories of your daily life, your daily expectations, also stories from your past, and how to, how are they relevant to your future. And every time we have a moment, one of the things I do with some of my speakers is I do a story log. And so we've been talking about that throughout our week is how do we log those stories and incidences in the moment? Some people need to write them down like, oh, on this day, this moment happened. So as we look through them, one of the stories I thought was really fascinating was this week, Monty is trying a lot of new food and he sat down with my mother-in-law. Mother-in-law is such a strange word, isn't it? It's like, (laughs) I'm legally obligated to call her mother. (laughs) I'm like, that's just a terrible thing to say. So I always introduce her as mother or in Japanese, Okasan. And Okasan and Monty were sitting down and it was his first meal in Japan. And she said, do you like white bait fish? She doesn't speak any English and he doesn't speak any Japanese. And he's like, I'll try anything once. That's right. <laughs> so they're sitting at this table in this little Japanese restaurant, and and they, the master brings out white bait fish, some konyaku root vegetables, and some miso soup. And this little white bait fish are like little tiny sardines with little eyeballs. You see the eyeballs. <laughs> yes, you see the eyeballs. I, I couldn't look at them. And Okasan's looking at him all expectantly like, do you like it? This is my favorite food. I've, uh, this is my favorite food in the world. I hope you like it, Monty. And Monty's just looking at it like, what, what was happening in your mind? <laughs> what am I eating now? <laughs> exactly. And he has this expression on his face. And it's like this little episode from a, a TV series or a movie where it's just like the camera's framing in and going in on <laughs> Monty's face. And, and here he is eating it and just going, it's her favorite food. I gotta like this. Oh, I really don't like this. But he has that expression on his face, which is priceless. The, I really want to let this person know I appreciate them. And I did finish it. And you did finish it. You did. <laughs> and then halfway through the, the server, you know, the master comes over and says, so oh, by the way, uh, for the second half of the meal, you whip up some of this raw egg yolk and put that on for a second flavor palette. <laughs> I did that too. Did it too. The expressions, those moments, those little bits, it doesn't have to be a dramatic thing, but it, it can be those little moments and episodes that you remember forever. And that's what I think is really epic. I mean, it's, it's I nothing it. compared to all the other stories that we've had this week, but it's a it, moment. You know, creating stories, creating moments, mm. part of it, you have to be adventurous. Mm. And sometimes being adventurous is getting out of your own comfort zone. And whether it's eating new foods, visiting new places, whatever it might be, that is a part of creating stories is trying something new. I ate something that I probably will never eat again, but I will try anything once. And I did that a couple times this week. You did it a couple times. I like that octopus cracker. He had fresh out of the press. (laughs) Octopus cracker. Yes, that was a new new treat. So these little moments, it doesn't have to be as grand as everyone expects them to be. It's just having that that scene, that setting, that environment and the emotion that drives it. Because often we talk about stories as, you know, as, as, as a vehicle to move the audience forward. What is the story without emotion? Emotion is the fuel that drives the story oh, from point A to point B. I love that. 
You know, th- this has been a fantastic. I've spent uh, nine, ten days here in Japan. We've gone skiing. We've seen the beach. We've tried different foods. We've seen castles. We've seen shrines. Uh, but I want to talk about what got you to Japan and what did you have to break through in moving here. You said you've been here 25 years. 25 years. Most of your life you've been here. Mm-hmm. And how you learned the language, how you learned the culture. Tell us tell us. What you had to break through to do all that? What I had to break through. Well, you know those little little girl dreams. You know, remember when you were a little girl? Uh, <laughs> vaguely. Yes. Vaguely, yeah, yeah. So you know, when I was a little girl, I had this dream. Like I, I loved Godzilla, and I really wanted to be a ninja growing up. <laughs> I talk a little bit about this in one of my TEDx talks about listening. Have you ever felt heard? And I just determined from that day, at some point, I will make it to Japan. And on my way to an MBA program, and they were like, "Well, if you speak Chinese, Japanese, or Russian, you're a shoo-in for." Harvard. I was like, oh, that's great. Yeah, I can learn Japanese in a year. I'll be back in a year. And 25 years later, I'm still here. <laughs> <laughs> but culturally, I mean, it's, it's... So you moved here without knowing Japanese? I didn't know any Japanese at all. Wow. I, I, I was a little ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> if I had to do Japan all over again, I would probably immerse myself in a Japanese language program initially. Sure. But, you know, young. I mean, at that point, the internet had just kind of come out. So it wasn't like there were all these tools that are available to learn on demand. Mm-hmm. So at that point, I was just attending Japanese classes once a week. And I think, you know, when, we, <laughs> when we're immersed in a different culture, like how have you felt not speaking Japanese. Oh, it's week. it's a challenge. Mm-hmm. It's you're out on your own island, people are talking and you don't know what they're saying mm-hmm. and you can kind of get where they're where they're pointing and things like that, but uh I can't read the signs. Now there's a lot of English signs, but not that many. Not many at all. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting since the World Cup soccer came and World Cup rugby and the Olympics multiple times, there are more signs in English. It's just kind of hard to see for all the affrontage of Japanese kanji characters all over the place and you know people are like oh what if i get to japan i get lost and my husband says yuji he says he's like well you know no matter which direction you go you're not going to go too far before you hit the water <laughs> <laughs> so you're not going to fall off the island you know what i mean it is an island nation the size of about california yeah so that's always good when it comes to japan uh, like japanese language or japanese culture there's always going to be an upper limit as a foreigner i've even though i've lived here most of my life and I feel like I'm fairly familiar with the culture, there's always going to be a reminder that, by the way, you don't quite fit in here. There's always going to be that reminder. On the other side of it, we also get the opportunity to experience, get to experience Japanese culture in a different way. Things that I I think are absolutely fascinating. Like I love, like one of the best things about Japan is having guests come over to your house because the guests do the cleaning up. It's expected. And it's the only reason I have barbecues. (laughs) They'd be going, oh, you're such a great neighbor. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Dishes go on the top shelf. The trash needs taking out. And the vacuums in the cupboard. I'm so glad you could make it. So there's those little points of you know the balance of you know do these irritations compare and contrast with the joy of it. Or sure. you were mentioning yesterday about how you experience the train in a different way, the environment and the respect for others. Tell us about that. Well, it, it is interesting that there's. There's rules. Um, everybody, you know, go up the escalator, you stand on the left side, you walk on the right side. You let 
those that need to sit, sit. Mm -hmm. And everybody seems to follow the rules, mm -hmm. which is very disciplined and traditional. And I, I, everybody is very friendly. That's the one thing I found as well is everybody is friendly. Everybody's caring, it seems to be. And so, yeah, it's, but the train rides, transportation, you're either on a train, you're on a bus uh, or a taxi, very few cars uh, as you said, no place to park. But the the transportation system is just amazing. We took a bullet train yesterday, and that was that was fantastic. What, what did we get up to two hundred miles an hour, something like something that? Something like that. And uh, so, yeah, it's just just seeing the countryside by by train uh, is a, a totally different and. But everybody's using it. Mm. Everybody uses the train. Yeah, there's an amount of awareness and mindfulness about the others around one. Yes. Right? So when you're sitting on the train, uh, you can always hear when people are talking on the train because they're the only people talking on the train. Yeah, it's silent. Silent. You, you, you want to have respect because everyone is commuting from point A to point B. Everyone's going to work. Everyone's Everyone's got stuff on their mind. So why would you interrupt that space with your nonsense? Yeah. And so... You, sit there and respectful yeah, quietness. That's been an experience, that's for sure. That's cool. Yeah. You know, uh, I, I want to go down a couple paths with mm -hmm. you. Uh, as I said, you, you're my speaking coach and you, you coach a lot of speakers on TEDx and writing and different things like that. What are some of the things that you help people break through and how do you help them break through their ceilings? Because you, mm -hmm. you, you challenge people in their thinking, you challenge people in their preparation mm -hmm. and, and their learnings. How do you do that and how do you push them through their ceilings? Well, it's interesting that you put it in the terms of ceilings, uh, especially because as a woman, I'm always constantly trying to break through the bamboo ceiling here in Japan. When working with my over 140 TED and TEDx speakers around the world, one thing that's come up consistently is the first idea. And often, you know, people, when they come in with the first idea, and you know, when you have that first idea, like, this is it. The first idea is not always the best idea. Are you familiar with the cellist Yo-Yo Ma? Yeah. Yeah, Yo-Yo Ma, brilliant cellist. He's world-renowned. And one of the things that he says is, uh, if you're without deep contemplation, you're just communicating sheer sound. And so what we do is we get an opportunity to step back, step away from that for a moment, sit in the quietness of it and the mindfulness of it as well, and meditate upon it and see really what your heart's mission truly is and see how that comes forward. And then we start looking at more of, instead of the first idea, see what's available to you. See what those, you know, everyone looks at a talk as like, yeah, yeah, here's how you create a keynote. Here's how you create a signature talk. Here's how you create a TEDx talk. I know because I was the one who created the the format for the TEDx talks. Um, <laughs> that is based on my academic research and my publications uh, in academic journals here. And I, I feel guilty about that because really that format doesn't exist. It's all a construct of the mind, and it's simply just trying to paint by numbers in an attempt to sound like someone who has something to say mm. on a stage. Instead, what we can do is look at the look at the various colors we have available to us, the palette of the stories of our lives, the the aptitude that we've gained, the experiences that we've gained, what we have learned that is worthy of other people having that idea. And when you make it clear, concise, and replicable, that's when we can start finding it. But we need to first discover the colors you have available. Mm -hmm. You can't paint Van Gogh's Starry Night if you don't have blue and yellow. So see what those are first. And then that deep contemplation, you're able to create something that's uniquely you. It is that easy for people to do in that deep contemplation or is that that hard from, from your experience for uh, an individual? I think it's a very playful experience and 
I mean, this is the type of people it's, it's I work a with. It's a vulnerable experience. Yes, it is. And it, it takes the the pulling, the questioning, and the deep thought to get there. It. I remember us starting that process. It isn't an easy process. Mm. And you do need someone to help you through that, to recognize, help you verbalize things that maybe you've never verbalized before. Yeah, I would agree with that because maybe that's what prevent some ideas from taking it to the next level. The fear of what if I sit with this too long? What if I, um, and if there is a fear factor. Of really- well, I think it's the fear of being vulnerable as well. Mm. I don't want people to know my story. I don't want people to know my mistakes. Mm. Um, I don't want people to know what I've gone through. And so I, I do think that that does help people break through their ceiling. And as mm. an achiever, I want you to think about what is it that mm. you need to be more vulnerable in to help you get to that next level? Because it, it is mm. talking talking it through. Mm. What did you learn from that? How can you mm. go to the next level because of that, not in spite of that? That's a really brilliant way to say that, not in spite of that. That's a really beautiful practice as well. When we, And that's actually something I've been dedicating the past decade to, has been the practice of vulnerability. And yeah, I know we can talk about vulnerability all day. Like, I'm so vulnerable. Uh, let me tell you my darkest story. But there are elements of it that uh, maybe are unseen or untapped, even within ourselves, that we may not have recognized. Mm-hmm. And that's a powerful process to go through. I'm sure Monty has seen me this week. I literally have been practicing vulnerability as a kind of daily mantra, although I am kind of reclusive. I live out by the beach in Japan and I spend all my day working with speakers in America and North America, Canada, you know, Australia and Europe and all over Pakistan, Asia, Singapore. Yeah, I'm all over the place. However, when I do interact with people, I've been practicing this vulnerability practice. I will if somebody notes or creates a moment to open up, I, and again, I think a lot of this is because I do spend a lot of time in solitude. I could spend six months alone not saying a word to anybody, <laughs> but then when I'm with people, I'm very excited to be with them. And I embrace that moment and see how vulnerable can I get in that moment? Yeah. And we've talked about you practicing that too. Like mm-hmm. how can you practice vulnerability with a stranger? Cause you'll probably never see them again. Yep. And seeing how that takes you to the next level in your own development as a, as a human being by practicing that vulnerability on a regular basis, not just, and it's scary. It's like, oh, wow, what if this person rejects me? But interestingly enough, there's something about that practice that you end up finding like-minded people that you would probably invite into your tribe. Right. That you would have never otherwise talked to. Right. Or had that conversation with. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. You know, I, I want to go down the path of your stories. Mm-hmm. What's something that you've had a challenge with that you had to grow or change to break through a ceiling for you to get to a next level? Gosh, there are so many points of that. I think one of the most challenging ones for me is I spent a year after having gone through multiple baby losses, I spent a year practicing, again, the art of vulnerability People often t- say to women who've miscarried, like, you know, they'll say ridiculous things like, oh, you know, God meant for you to have, you know, if God wanted you to have a baby, you'd have a baby, you know, there are all these platitudes that people say. So I spent a year annotating and, you know, how I love data. <laughs> uh, Monty's been just laughing a lot this week because every, you know, every five minutes, I'm like, here's another factoid. <laughs> I'll start laughing as we're going up a ski lift because I'm like, that's a prime example of a pole. And he and my husband will look at me like, what? No, they're prime numbers. <laughs> so I, I love this stuff. So I like to sit down and annotate. So I practiced 
what everyone said to do. Well, talk about baby loss, talk about miscarriage. All right, well, let's give this a go. And I actually had spreadsheets available for this. And I would write down every time somebody would say, do you have kids? I said, no, I lost the baby again. And see what their their reactions and responses were. And I would mark them down and Mm. delineate and uh, what the specific question was and what the specific answers were. So after spending a year of that, noting that, well, I haven't heard anything that's useful for me, uh, and it's all quite painful, but allowing myself to experience that in order to collect the data. (laughs) This is how nerdy I get on this. And then I listened to 600 women's stories of their losses and what words brought them comfort or what made them feel shame and getting up on a TEDx stage and speaking about that not just from the, you know, my baby dad, that's not really like the thing I wanted to talk about on a TEDx stage, uh, more so about representing 600 women and one man who decided to participate. Huh. He really wanted to participate. Like, fantastic. So 600 women and one man who shared their stories of what caused them feelings of shame and what felt made them feel supported. And out of 600 women and one man, only one person said that she did not feel shamed in her loss process hmm. at all. And the rest of them had story upon story upon story of all the moments of shame. So how do we change the dialogue around that? And I think that for me was, it was, you know, as as an academic, I was a communications researcher and practitioner and having to deep dive, not into observing and annotating other people's experiences, but to annotate my own experiences and then mine the data for it. That was a lot for me. Mm. That was, that was pretty heavy. However, it was also one of the most healing things I've ever done in my life to go through that and and to experience the other side and to witness how the audience responded to that. You, you mentioned the phrase, change your dialogue. Mm-hmm. What, what internal dialogue did you change to? The change to, that's a really big challenging word because you can, there's two ways of looking at change your dialogue. One is the internal dialogue or change the dialogue that I'm having with someone else. Mm. And so in this case, two ways I was able to do it was one, I was able to, when someone had a dialogue with me, I'm, I'm very clearly able to create the boundaries around that, like inappropriate. And people say, like, you can't say inappropriate. I'm like, why not? Why not just call boundary? <laughs> and, and people are shocked by that. It's a little abrupt. And when I tell people that I do this, they're like, you don't do that. I'm like, yeah, I do. I literally do this. And I say, that's inappropriate. What I would like from you instead is, mm-hmm. and I tell people exactly what I want and what I need. And if they can't concede to that or appreciate the needs that I have in that moment for, you know, I'm suffering, I'm going through pain, and uh, this keeps happening repeatedly, if they cannot understand that in that moment, hopefully one day they will come to an understanding. I really hope nobody ever comes to that understanding by base of experience. However, that is the case of life. And one out of four women will experience loss. 100% of us as human beings will experience a loss, a loss of identity, a loss of a job, a loss of a loved one, uh, going through a divorce, any of these things, they all sum up to an amount of grief that we experience as as the commonality of of humankind, because we're not creatures born of singularity. We are born as as a collective, and we can appreciate that better. So one, by changing the dialogue with that other person creating, like here's what I, here are the tools I have for you if you ever experience this or you'd like to communicate with me better. Huh. And on the other hand, the internal dialogue of this is not me. This is their perception of an experience based on what they have experienced so far in their life, the things that have been said to them potentially, or the things that they've heard others say to others. It's like when someone dies, we say, um, my condolences. I'm sorry for your loss. Like, are you? I never write my condolences. I'm sorry for your loss. I will sit there and like, even on Facebook, I'll ask a question or, you know, what was something that 
made me, what was something your dog did that made you smile or laugh? Mm. Or what was your... Take it to a new place. Take it to a new place or really have a better understanding because I want to understand why that person has felt such love that they could experience grief. That understanding, you said a number of great things there I want to, <laughs> really want to bring out. One, is, one, the external, your boundaries, mm. telling others what you need and what you want. I think that's a powerful thing that we probably don't do well. We don't know how to communicate as a as a population, as a as a as a world. So I think that's something that as as an achiever, where do you need to express your boundaries more? Where do you need to tell others what you need, what you want uh, to communicate better with them? And uh, the, the second part was internal, and it's about understanding yourself and others' perspectives aren't yours. You've got, it's your perspective. They may have their viewpoint, but this is about your viewpoint, not theirs. Mm. And that's, excuse me, my cats are wandering around. They have their boundaries too. He's actually on <laughs> patrol right now. This is the time of day where he, he checks the boundaries of the, of the, of the doors to make sure that the house is safe. And my cats also practice consensual <laughs> activity too. Well, you know, it's, it's, it is about understanding yourself. Mm. It's not about, not about what others think of us. Mm. We have to, it's their perception. And, mm. and we can't take it on. Exactly. So like Monty and I are really good friends. Like I would probably, I don't know, I probably consider you one of my dearest friends. Um, and, you know, even if we have different beliefs and opinions, like whether it comes to uh, political things or ideologies or philosophies, we can come to an understanding because that is you know, I can share, oh, this is my experience. And you right. can share, well, this is my experience. And I'm like, oh, okay. I can appreciate and, and have compassion for your experience. And you can also appreciate and have compassion for my experience. We don't have to win each other over. We know that we can come from different perspectives and still have the fundamental value set that remains the same, which is why we're, we're such good friends, because we do share a number of the same values. And as a result of that, we can go, yeah, I can see your perspective. Mm -hmm. And while I may not share that, I, I really appreciate where you're coming from. And it from still doesn't, it doesn't come between us. Not at all. And I, I think that's a breaking through a ceiling as well, is we can't take things personally mm. and we can't hold grudges if others don't feel or view things the same way mm. that we do. Well, we can, but we choose not to. But that's, that's, <laughs> yes, we can. Uh, yeah. But that's, the, that's part of the problem in the world today. I think mm. that we do too much of that judging mm. uh, aspect of it. Yeah. Which creates different stories. And, and that's a human that's a human element. I mean, we were born into tribes and our tribes could max out at 60. And now with, you know, we have, I'm at my limit of Facebook friends. I'm like, And I've met every single one of them. And if you ask Monty, he's like, yeah, she probably has. I meet a lot of people. As they were close, I somehow meet a lot of people. Um, <laughs> and at the same time, you know, it's hard to stay on the same page with everyone at the same time, it's, it's hard to say right. stay on the same philosophical mindset or ideological mindset. We can choose how we interact with the people that we choose to love. Mm -hmm. And that's that's another aspect. You know, there's, there's one more area I want to talk about and maybe share with us the difference in the Japanese business world. Mm. You're in the business world. You talk to a lot of business people as well. But what's different in the business world of Japan versus where I'm from, where you grew up, uh, things like that. What's what's your perspective there? That's a really, really long question because, you know, I've, I've been living in Japan for many, many years where it goes from Disney or, you know, being on TV and radio for NHK, which is like Japan's version of the BBC and writing and producing at Fox TV Japan on some more comedic elements. And there are so many things that are wonderful, like the the choice of mastery. 
you will never, I have never experienced outside of Japan, and I've traveled quite a bit, I've never experienced the desire for mastery in one's area and still maintaining, maintaining the, the humbleness that comes with it. Thank you. The humbleness that comes with it, as well as looking at how do I understand the other parts that would complete the whole. So when you enter in, let's say an, at NHK or Fox, like, oh, let's say at Fox TV, um, I went from uh, being an on-air talent and, you know, then I was able to have a better understanding because they would call me into meetings and help with script writing. And then I would work with the script writing and the comedic elements. One of the things I do as part of my storytelling and the consistent desire to share social issues and how we can how we can overcome them is through a stand-up comedy as well. So adding those elements in there and to the point where I have a better understanding of how every element of it works from the camera to the to the accounting to the production to the directing to the point where when they said, hey, oh, by the way, your, your show is going to end in six months, they were expecting me to break down in tears. And I'm like, great, can I write and produce the rest of it? And they're like, what? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, can I? No, I'm already writing on it. So can I have those credits? And can I, you know, start mm -hmm. taking it to the next level so I can have a more full encompassed experience of this? And they're like, yes, because I had demonstrated the desire for mastery in my area, but also an understanding of all the other areas and choosing to step in. And how can I, how can I help in this? How can I support in this? How can I uh, increase, you know, the views? How can I support yeah. in the entirety of the process? We were talking the other day, one of our friends, Mayumi, who lives in Hokkaido, we were talking about the mastery of, of skiing as well, skiing and swimming and anything. And, you know, as, as an American, I'm like, yeah, I can snowboard. I'm pretty good at snowboarding. I've been skateboarding since I was, you know, kid. So, you know, then I started surfing and then I started snowboarding. Of course, I'm pretty decent at it. But for her, she's 63 years old and has been skiing since she was seven. And she's like, I think I should take a lesson. <laughs> always after mastery, always after getting better. There's always one more point that you can you can become more excellent at. Mm. And that pursuit of excellence and knowing that there's one more area that I can improve. Actually, you know, when I turn, you know, I don't feel like I'm turning at the best, best radius that I could. You know, and it's like, wow. Yeah, great. You cross-country ski every day. I love that desire for mastery. Yeah. No matter how experienced you are, no matter where you're at in your life, your mm. career, your your health, there's always another level. I, and I think that's something that we can all embrace. Mm -hmm. um, how do you embrace that in your life? Do you do you pursue that next level of mastery? And how do you do that? I, I, absolutely. I mean, I've been speaking for 25 years and I have a speaking coach. I've been skiing for 40 years and I took a lesson over Christmas. You know, there's mm. exactly, if you aren't looking for uh, how you can grow, you aren't going to go to that next level. Um, because it takes a new level of strength to get there. And you pushed yourself this break. So my husband, he's he's been skiing also since he was, you know, able to stand up from Aizu Akamatsu Fukushima, near where the the great earthquake was. And the probably heard about the nuclear power reactors, but most commonly on the news on the other side of the mountain. He's been skiing his whole entire life. And I asked Monty, you know, what was your what's something that you'd like to to try and do in your life? What's something not necessarily a bucket list, but what's something you've always dreamed of doing? And once you said, well, it it was it was a bucket listing. I've I've always wanted to do hella skiing, but hella skiing isn't a thing here. So we did cat skiing, where the snow mover takes you to the top of a of an area that has powder that's ten foot deep. Who knows how deep it is? And you ski in this powder. Oh, by the way, there's lots of trees. And <laughs> So this this was a bucket list item, and uh, that was that was a new challenge. That was probably one of the phys most physically challenging things I've done in my entire life. 
And it's really interesting because when you're thinking about, you're like, ah, you know, how deep can the powder be? No, when you go swimming, you go swimming in powder. It's, it is like 10 feet deep. It's like skiing through a very steep pinball machine where ding, 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 is, you know, like you're constantly aiming through the trees everywhere. So much so that even after many years of snowboarding, I knew my physical limitation. I was like, you know, I've had long haul COVID. I'm not physically at the point where I could do this. Maybe I could have done it pre-COVID, but I was like, I hated to do this. But a month before we went, I was like, I have to call out because I know my physical limitation. And it's still the same point. Um, everybody who went on the tour was maxing out their physical yeah. ability. Yeah, that, that was a, definitely a unique experience and something that I've wanted to do. And now I can say I've done it. So <laughs> it's absolutely fantastic. <laughs> absolutely. You know, a couple questions that I, I want to ask more are, again, our audience mm -hmm. is, is the achiever somebody that is going to the next level, they're breaking through ceilings. How would you define the word achiever? Achiever. Or how would you describe an achiever? This is something that I've been coming to a realization of. I've been working my entire life. I've worked since I was, gosh, I think since I was like nine years old, but I've been putting food on the table since I was 13. And, you know, constantly working, performing to get to the next level. Uh, even when I got into a better, you know, into a, into a school system, um, constantly aiming for the straight A's, aiming for, you know, getting the scholarships and putting myself through university and, you know, getting myself to Japan. I was always working on the next thing, the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. I was a classic achiever. Uh, my mm -hmm. functioning level seems to be, you know, up here constantly. And I'm, I'm constantly cat skiing through life. <laughs> yes, I agree. And that's something I've been taking a look at recently, especially mm -hmm. since getting long haul COVID, you know, and, and especially in the past few years, you know, leading up to one of my four TEDx talks on, <laughs> on communications is like, wow, I keep going for the next thing. Why? And my husband asked like, what is the next thing you need to achieve? And yesterday, or two days ago, we were in Hakone, and there's this beautiful open-air museum. And one of the exhibitions in one of the buildings was by this guy, Giovocci Manzu, maybe pronouncing that incorrectly. It's Italian, but I have a very good photographic memory. And um, so I remember, and I was just blown away by this guy. This guy, his job was to build a door. A door. A door. For the, For the Pope. Just a door. It was a door. It was a door. It was a door that took him 17 years. 17 years to make a door. And 10 years into it, the Pope turns to him and says, you know, hey, yeah, I see that you're you're designing these reliefs for the door, but it looks like you need a little mental relief. <laughs> Take it easy. It's okay. It's a door. Take your time. Yeah. And then, uh, then soon thereafter, the Pope died. So here he is. He spends 17 years to design what is called the door of death. And it also has a homage, his, his gratitude and thankfulness to the Pope and to you too. Yes, kitty cat. 17 years. I mean, that's, that's like practically a lifetime back in the 1800s. It's 17 years to make one thing. Yeah. Why am I constantly rushing to the next thing? Why are we constantly looking for the next achievement when we could be making a door it's like the uh it's like the guy who who invented velcro are you familiar with the guy i've told you about him this yep, week. Yep. <laughs> in one of your stories in one of my million stories this guy who invented velcro he was walking through his yard and he and he gets on his pants leg and socks and shoelaces those little hitchhikers those green hitchhiker things that are like little they stick right yes. they're annoying and he looks at them picks it up he's like ah, these things are just so and that's kind of interesting how they the fibers grow one way and the other and how it attaches to the sock. I bet I could make a magic tape out of this. Yes, you could make a magic tape too. I bet I could make a magic tape out of this. And I'm going to call that Velcro. 
You know what else the guy invented? Nothing. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. So what if we enjoy what we're doing and playfully understand that and create on a level that's higher and without the pressure of having to make that next great achievement? So you're saying we can enjoy life and still be an achiever. Maybe that's one part of achievement right there is enjoying life which is one of the reasons why I came to Japan to experience life and see things in a different way. So I, I love it. I really enjoyed the conversation. You know, there's one last question we always ask every one of our guests okay. is, what do you want to be known for? What do I want to be known for? That sounds a little bit like legacy to me. <laughs> and I've been thinking about legacy because I always thought my entire life, like I want to leave a legacy, you know? And I looked at the museum, the open air museum, and like these these people create massive businesses to create a foundation that's not just a tax write-off, but something that's, you know, something beneficial to humanity and the arts and society. And it's like, that's a cool legacy. But then I think about myself and, and look at the neighborhood. And have you noticed, you know, when you're driving by someplace, and there's a stable community, a building that's been there forever. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly it's gone. And you're like, what was there? I'm trying to remember what was in that spot. I just can't remember. And it's gone. And I kind of think that's how I, I'm going to choose to be. Because I can leave a space for the next incarnation of what humanity and society needs mm. to be. Because otherwise, if I think about leaving a legacy, you know what it's going to be? It's going to end up being me. I'm going to have my uh, my groceries in the basket of my bicycle, riding home, and I'll be, you know, just paying attention to the stoplights. And suddenly the receipt for my grocery bag is going to go flying back outside. And some guy's going to see me and say, oh, there's that foreign lady on the bicycle with an orange bag. And oh, she dropped a receipt. She's littering. No. And then I'm going to remember it forever. They're like, oh, yeah, I'm going to meet this. He's going to go home and tell a story when he goes home to his family at night and say, oh, my goodness, I saw this foreigner litter. She threw a receipt out of her shopping bag, didn't even bother to pick it up. That's what I'd end up getting remembered for. So <laughs> I am going to choose to, to be the open space and to allow something new to come through. Now, as I want to be known for, not my legacy, but what I would like to be known for is honest connection and creating that honest connection with others so that they can create an honest connection through their TED and TEDx talks and their stories and their communications with others. I love it. I love it. I thank you very much for the conversation. There's there's so many things that I took away, but I want to capture a few for our, our listener, the, the achievers to, uh, to remember, appreciate and have compassion. And I think that's a big thing that uh, I've recognized this week, especially not understanding the language. So you got to have compassion for others changing the dialogue internally and externally, I think was, was powerful and enjoy what you're doing. I think that's, that, that is a part of what an achiever does is they have to enjoy what they do and enjoy life, not just work, your life, your health, every aspect of your being has to be a part of enjoyment. So Sinesh, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for being my host while I'm here in Japan. And uh, hopefully every one of you can visit Japan. It will be an amazing experience for you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for listening to What's Your Ceiling? We hope this episode has helped you transform the way you think, understand your awareness, has given you new ideas, and has provided you a new perspective on how to push through your ceiling. Please take in a second to give us a thumbs up. Each review helps us impact more people just like you making a difference in this world. See you next week on What's Your Ceiling?